Welcome to Primordial Tao, Present Tao, a podcast about all things Taoism. Our conversations and interviews will discuss ancient and modern Taoist wisdom teachings, spiritual practices, seasonal longevity and healing traditions, relationship guidance, and profound insights on walking an authentic and meaningful path, however you choose to walk it. Welcome home to the ocean of Tao. And also the more we're trying to manipulate other people by poking them certain ways, spray painting them in certain ways to get them to respond so that they look like, behave like, and uh, I guess act like the version of them we want. So there's really not a lot of trust going on here. There's a lot of manipulation, control, and passive-aggressive shenanigans and a bunch of other things. But more importantly, from a, a meditation point of view, there's four layers of paint between you and any other sentient human being with language. Welcome to Primordial Dao Present Dao Podcast. I'm your host, Ravi Kaler, and I'm here with the one and only Dr. Michael Smith. And this is episode eight, bringing the unconscious into consciousness. Hey, Michael, how are you doing today? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm super excited at the conversation that we're going to have today. And I feel like it's going to be a deep dive. Okay, I'm just going to put my feet flat on the ground and get myself ready for whatever's going to happen next because this is uh, a mystery show. Ravi's going to surprise me with a whole bunch of really interesting questions. So I'm going to be totally on the spot and... <laughs> uh, hopefully totally spontaneous and uh, uh, let's see how this flows let's do it um, so I kind of want to chat a little bit about uh, so those of you that don't know uh, Michael's obviously a Qigong teacher and uh, I'm going through a program that he developed uh, that's relating Qigong and trauma and I kind of just wanted to start Mike with uh, something that you said during the first webinar that kind of really struck me and it's kind of just been in my awareness and uh, it's really helped uh, change my perspective on thinking. Um, so the line was uh, to learn to trust awareness more than knowing. Yeah, that, that's I think a pretty important truth. And for someone like myself, which, and I would assume most people, where if we're faced with some sort of adversity, we immediately go into the thinking mind to try and figure out the solution. And that prompt has really shifted something in me where, um, let's say I'm feeling some sort of dysregulation and uh, it's almost a trigger for me to just really dive deep into my awareness. Mm -hmm. And that's very potent, very powerful. And uh, it's really learning to reprogram a whole bunch of things for me. Well, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm really quite curious about what your experience of that is. 
Well, I guess like the one thing that I can share is uh, so the other day my mom came in. Uh, we have some guests coming over, and she's trying to get a whole bunch of things ready. So she came in like a like a red hot freight train. And normally, I get caught up in uh, that. I guess it's like a hurricane. And uh, as soon as I felt that coming in, I started to feel anxious, a little bit of anger. Um, I immediately dove into my feet, into my knees, and started listening and paying attention to myself and to the whole situation. And instead of having a situation where I'm immediately flooded and completely taken over and unconscious, I stayed present and I stayed conscious. And that was really cool. Well done. Um, so I guess the Qigong is working. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that statement, I think, if I was to not only respond to uh, the inquiry, but to encourage people to use awareness skillfully, that statement has three really important words, trust, awareness, and knowledge. And because the context of what we're talking about right now is uh, the therapeutic Qigong course and the webinar that we did, uh, I guess, a week or so ago. Uh, and maybe for the audience, I'll just put a link to that webinar in the show notes so people want to spend a couple hours learning about uh, how Qigong and trauma and um, modern life kind of intersect in, in a way, then they can check that out because uh, that information, I think, is pretty important to have if, if you are experiencing trauma or especially if you're a clinician looking for a model uh, to understand and work with that part of human experience because um, the, the having a model and a, and, a, and a sequence and an understanding I think is really quite helpful for people but when we think about trust awareness knowledge as sort of the most important words in in that statement the first thing I think to be aware of is that one of the biggest wounds of trauma that happens is we lose very different aspects of trust so in order to trust awareness or even trust knowledge, we have to experience a certain amount of trust. And trust sometimes can be misinterpreted as power or control or a memory of being able to sneak our way through or manipulate our way through um, various experiences. And making that distinction between trust and power, trust and control, trust and manipulation is huge because trust is something innate and everything else is something nervous. Like if I have to use my power, is my power good enough? Am I, am I a superhero? Like how's that all going to work out? And, and that's not really trust at all. So when we sit with the idea, the experience, the, the meaning of trust, that's going to shift our gears quite a bit. And then when we look at knowledge and or awareness knowledge is something that we can have a kind of contention with and, and i say this quite a lot when i'm doing public speaking i'm going to speak to my experience i'm going to speak to something that i uh, found through awareness and as i share this experience notice that no matter what your reaction to my experience is i'm not sharing something that you could think of as knowledge. Because if I'm sharing my experience, you can't disagree with that. You can't say there's something better than that. 
there's something I can compare that experience to that can create contention. You know, my, my experience is better than your experience. Like, how does that ever possibly mean anything? <laughs> but if I say my knowledge is better than your knowledge, then we can all start nodding and saying, okay, let's bring out the, the dueling <clears throat> books of, of whatever knowledge might be and see who wins. Right. So knowledge is something that you can contend with, you know, right or wrong. So that'd be like the foundation of like debate. Uh, yeah. I mean that, that's so like that, a knowledge fight. Yeah. <laughs> a, a debate <laughs> is a very organized sequential, you know, knowledge fight. I love that. That's really cool. <laughs> right. So, so when we step away from anything that can be compared, anything that can be fought, anything that can be, um, construed as better, you know, or, or right or wrong, then, then we've already come into, uh, not really a trust game, but more about a, a, a winner, you know, like my, my, my truth is bigger than your truth or my dad is bigger than your dad or all that kind of immature angsty stuff that, uh, sometimes we're not aware that that's where we're coming from. So we, you know, sit with ourselves and say, okay, I, I might know something about what's going on. But if I sink into my awareness of what's going on, then I'm much more in touch with what's going on. So whether or not I know more or less about what's going on is always going to be determined by the depth and patience and space of awareness. That's and cool. I like how you're linking the awareness with the trust. Well, they're, they're kind of similar to each other. You know, the more I can trust awareness, the more I can trust stillness, the more I can trust patience, the more I can trust into where curiosity may lead me. I'm allowing trust to be like a steering wheel, you know, because I think a lot of times with trust, we, we have this idea that um, now you're on a bus and trust is driving the bus. And, you know, now trust is under the one part of this that's in control. Right. So if I've given control up and said, okay, I'll just trust this. Right. And then now someone else has got the steering wheel and they're going to take us where we're going to go. And because we said, I trust this, then we also secretly can, you know, drag along with this, the grudge of, but I trusted you and I got hurt. Right. Because we've given this abstract idea that trust is something you can hand over to someone else. Instead of just internally cultivating it yourself? Well, just uh, allowing ourselves to go, okay, if I'm going to trust knowledge, then until someone else with bigger knowledge comes along and steps on me, I'm going to be okay. So on one level, I'm okay. And on one level, I'm waiting for Godzilla to come up and stomp on me. <laughs> right? Because knowledge is this, you know, speculative game of, you know, who wins the, um, the, the contention game. But if I trust awareness, then the steering wheel is now about sensitivity. It's about patience and curiosity and stillness and waiting and including. And that way, any knowledge could possibly be helpful or in its not being helpful, it's also helpful. You know, that knowledge is true to my experience. I agree with that knowledge because of my awareness, my, my trusting into awareness. If that knowledge is not true to my experience, then through trusting awareness, that knowledge is still of benefit because it's not true to my experience. 
and that way knowledge isn't the winner knowledge is just the uh, i don't know the i think of those little speed bumps that you, you find in some parking lots you know donk donk okay car is fine donk donk okay that's not good for the car <laughs> you know because that knowledge does or doesn't help me with where i'm going but that way knowledge doesn't have its own abstract power anymore awareness does and trust doesn't have to have that uh valentine's you know curse of you know giving your whole emotional being over to someone else's choices and behavior because that that's sort of the danger of the the modern kind of western ethos around trust is i trust you so now i give you my heart and if you stomp all over it it's because i trusted you yeah so like in that paradigm it kind of seems like instead of using trust to just radically be yourself and be empowered to like just be it's like we're just giving it away because we don't want the responsibility of maybe holding something like that yeah and i guess that's sort of the point of that is you know trust is either uh an opening to where awareness and intimacy and the chaos and order of life take say a relationship or something um or trust can be kind of a snooze button you know okay we're we're in love and we said the right words and and now i'm going to trust you but secretly i'm going to resent everything you do that makes me afraid you're going to turn into someone else and i might secretly start manipulating you to avoid you turning into someone else so then now i'm stopping you and your awareness from trusting something and needing you because I don't want you to become someone else because you might become someone I don't feel the same way about. And that's the messiness of, you know, trust in relationship. But in the context of uh, Qigong practice and, you know, entering into a very intimate, sensual, authentic, somewhat insane relationship with the existential pain of trauma, we have to regain trust and we have to regain awareness and we have to regain some kind of groundedness in, in both. And then knowledge is this fluid mirror of, I think that makes sense. But in five minutes, something else might make more sense. So not really thinking the knowledge thing is, is what I want to use as my steering wheel. I'm getting into the, the understanding that trust is malleable. Awareness is malleable knowledge isn't meant to be malleable you know and when we can loosen our gears a little bit uh, and enter into a deeper awareness with what the body holds as memory uh, around trauma and we have that superpower of patience stillness curiosity curiosity playfulness and trusting awareness itself you know in a way trusting consciousness and if we get overwhelmed, then awareness will be overwhelming <laughs> and we can decide, okay, I'm going to step back from this. I'm going to maybe shift what I'm doing a little bit so that I can maintain a, a really conscious, trusting relationship with what's coming into awareness. And, and then I don't have to trust the answer. I can trust the inquiry. Right. Which brings us back into awareness. Yeah. <laughs> The superpower um, of superpowers. So to kind of just, uh, what I wanted to do with this conversation is get some fundamental foundational definitions um, for the direction that we're going okay. and then slowly, <laughs> oh, 
<laughs> that sounds like knowledge, but <laughs> let's keep it valuable. <laughs> and then, uh, and then kind of just, I have a little bit of a loose framework as to where I want to take the conversation, but let's, uh, let's see where we go with this. Um, so like I said before, uh, the title is bringing the unconscious into consciousness. Um, so for the context of what we're going to speak about today, Michael, can we define consciousness? Ooh, okay. Consciousness. I think the first important thing is to notice that it's a this word. So you can have cute, you can have cuter, you can have cutest, and you can have cuteness. So everyone is a certain kind of cute. Some people may be cuter depending on what your scale of cute is. Someone's always going to be the cutest when you pick up a scale. But every living thing, even from bacteria to whatever gods might be, they all have their own little cuteness. I think uh, one of my teachers put this really clearly, um, and this is more of a Chinese medicine Taoist practice awareness uh, of what consciousness might be. So imagine that there's a sphere uh, that begins in the center of your heart for, you know, a, a nice place to put the center. It could be anywhere. And in, in fact, the center has to be allowed to move because sometimes I might be coming from a very animalistic, very instinctual place. And now the center might be in my groin or in my belly. Sometimes I might be really focused on meaning and nuance and the, I don't know, it's like being really high on cannabis and you're this close to finally getting the meaning of, I don't know, a Pink Floyd song or something or whatever's going on in that moment. <laughs> so now you're kind of like in the middle of your forehead, right? So that, that sphere of consciousness can have different centers. Uh, maybe, uh, I don't know if, if we, if you know someone who's really deeply in, invested in yoga, they, they might talk to you about the chakras as, as seven different centers of consciousness. I, I can't be certain of that, but I intuitively that kind of makes sense to me. So we're going right. to put that center in our heart because we're going to speak to consciousness. And let's say that there's that sphere is a few feet around you, you know, above your head, below your feet and around you. And I often think of the heart torus that science discovered 15 or 20 years ago, uh, the bioelectric field that you can see with machinery that actually emanates from the center of the human heart, you know, that can be seen, you know, five or six feet around the whole body. So uh, I guess I, I like when ancient traditions and subtle suggestions and modern science are all nodding at each other going, yeah, 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 that, that's actually like, you know, a, a place that, you know, things happen and uh, might be a thing in itself. So everything that moves through that sphere, as if that sphere is a window, is consciousness in the sense that that's what that node of consciousness is experiencing. So just take a moment and I, I'm sort of jump back and forth here, but can you see a window? Yes. Okay. So look at the window and notice the glass. And that glass is, well, technically a liquid. It's going to be there for a few hundred years before it gradually melts into a puddle. And it's experiencing everything that's going from the outside into your room and from your room outside into the world. And that glass, if we could become that in our meditation, is consciousness. 
it's just this plane, you know, in the sense that it's sort of a two-dimensional shape of perception. And light passes one way, and light passes another way, and the glass is not really changed by that, you know, whatever people might see if they're peeking into the window to watch you <laughs> do your day, <laughs> and everything you see looking outside of that. So as long as there's a, an actual observer, you know, either in the room, outside the room, or as the glass, that's consciousness in the sense that experience moves through it. And as long as there's a point of uh, experience, that's what consciousness is experiencing. Now, as human beings, we experience things subjectively. So it's happening to us or around us. But as glass, it's just daytime, nighttime, this year, next year, winter, summer. And the information or the experience moving through the glass doesn't change the glass. So now we go back to that sphere, the, we call it e-sphere, or, you know, where the moment between experiencing something through attention and responding to something with your, you know, nature as a being, that's the sphere, that's the glass, that's consciousness. In essence, it's empty, but it's the only way to experience the fullness of existence and life and embodied moments and conscious moments and drunken moments and uh, terrified moments. And it's how you experience your childhood. It's going to be how you experience your death. But when we decide to really reside in the window, reside in the sphere, then we're residing in consciousness. So technically the answer to what is consciousness is that which experiences all information, sensation, ideation, dream, fantasy, fear, uh, every quality of uh, subjective experience through the awareness of being. Which is unchanging in itself. That's, that's sort of the thing that, at least from a meditation point of view, is kind of important. So that we can reside in consciousness, as consciousness, and have more space and room for whatever squeezing its way in and out of consciousness because of being alive, but because of spending two years in lockdown, because um, of a history of your mother's frantic needs to get everything done on time or something might piss you off. You know, whatever's happening in consciousness can't injure consciousness. So when we so is that how in like spiritual traditions um, it's referred to as like the witness? Maybe. I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I would say that. I think the witness is meant to be a mature point of perception in yourself as a self watching the squirming immature parts of yourself be yourself. So we kind of hire the objective witness to say, okay, I'm a person, I'm alive in the world, I speak this language, I, you know, have this kind of sense of humor. So as a witness, I still have a subjective sense of self. Whereas consciousness has, at a certain baseline, no subjective point of perspective. It's just the window pane. Right. Cool. 
pretty thorough and complete, I would say. Um, so let's uh, get into defining unconscious or unconsciousness for the context of this podcast. Okay. Wow, this sounds so, so official. I feel like I'm being interviewed by a lawyer. <laughs> for this well, podcast. I, I kind of just want to get these definitions like in well, a bubble here. Yeah, and yeah, then no, uh, just so everyone kind of, we're all on the same page and then we can get into kind of squirming around with them and playing with it a little bit. <laughs> I'm really excited. I have no idea what's going to happen. Um, my favorite part about being consciousness is got no clue how to be in control of any of this. So I would say, uh, the, I guess I'm, I'm a bit of a language nerd. So I, I like to be, uh, I like to use words and how they're formed to make sense of things. So let, let's say there's a distinction between unconsciousness and non-consciousness. Okay. So in, in certain aspects of Asian thought, uh, especially around martial arts, we have this idea of uh, ushin. Um, or wushin in, in Japanese, uh, wushin in Chinese. Um, and actually, I'm not certain about the Japanese. It's been a long time since I've studied with anyone <laughs> from a Japanese martial arts point of view, but I remember <laughs> my primary teacher in that uh, context using that a lot. And that's meant to be non-subjective uh, consciousness, like no mind. Like, I remember there's this Tom Cruise movie, The Last Samurai, and he's trying to learn to be a sword fighter, and he's pretty crappy at the beginning because he's, you know, new at this, and he's also just a recovering alcoholic, so he's not having the best day, I guess, at learning this sword fight. And one of the people who's watching says, too many mind. You know, mind on, you know, the audience, mind on the enemy, mind on the sword, mind on this, mind on that. And, you know, they say, like, what of no mind? What if consciousness doesn't have to have a subjective point of reference? It can just be itself. So that's this idea of non-consciousness, non-mind, non-egoic, non-subjective. You're just like a, a how a candle lights a room. You know, you, you don't like you're not a flashlight trying to find a specific thing in a room. You're just, you know, consciousness as a room. Right, so there's that that idea of of non-consciousness or or not actively emptying what is trying to fill consciousness. So instead of grabbing onto and trying to build a Lego castle out of what you experience as consciousness, you're just constantly flushing the toilet of adding, <laughs> you know, and and trying to again trust awareness, right? Right. So unconsciousness doesn't really mean the same thing because it means about to emerge into consciousness. Right? Because that's kind of what I think we mean in English anyway by it's unconscious. Dreams come into you from the unconsciousness, implying that in some imminent sense it will arise into consciousness, and now you got to deal with that. <laughs> so that's, I think, what, what people are, are implying by the unconscious. And it's it's this imminently possible thing that's going to emerge into enter into consciousness from whence unconsciousness comes um so it's always there it's it's maybe even i don't know i just this is i'm being really intuitive here so if this doesn't work let me know but i just had this weird image of walking a dog and the dog starting to talk to you in english 
Okay. You know, so here's the dog. It doesn't talk. It's an instinctual animal. We've kind of tamed it to not poo on the floor and eat the neighbor's cat or whatever. But it, it's it's always got this unknown kind of potentially raw animal thing going on. I, I used to race wolf hybrids, so I'm, I'm used to being around 120-pound monsters that could kill me. And as long as we have really good communication on their level, we're okay. But they're not going to communicate on my level. So I always have, I think, this dream slash nightmare in my head that they're going to start talking to me. But I just sort of flashed in my, my imagination that that's kind of a funny way to imagine unconsciousness in your life. You know, you're walking along and something that doesn't talk starts talking. You know, the dog starts saying, hey man, you know, we should really work out that thing about you getting up at three in the morning and having a snack and not giving me any food, you know, or whatever the dog might have to say. But that's, I think, a kind of cartoon metaphor for what it's like to relate to the unconscious part of life, knowing that at any moment it might start talking to you. That's a big part of why people, uh, I think, are so attracted to entheogenic medicines or uh, psychedelic hallucinogenic uh, plant medicines, because it's going to start talking. You're going you're gonna to hear things, see things, maybe learn things, possibly even know things. Well, I'm pushing a certain boundary with that, but it's pretty amazing to know that you can take a few grams of psilocybin and absolutely the dog will start talking, <laughs> you know, in whatever way. And we all know, you know, six or seven hours later, the dog wasn't actually talking, but for a period of time that made perfect sense. Totally legit. Glad to meet you, you know, and, and whatever comes from that place is, is now welcome because the conscious, the unconscious is now like, all right, we've loosened the gears. I'm going to start talking to you or bringing something up to you. And now that's allowed. So that boundary of the unconscious is what you're willing to experience below the mind or before the mind or what you're not. And I would say this and I'll be I'm not trying to go on a big lecture here, but one question I sometimes ask my patients in the clinic is, hey, do you ever take like LSD or mushrooms? And they're like, oh my God, I would never do that. I would lose control. And I'm like, okay, that's kind of why I brought it up is I'm not suggesting you need to take, you know, mushrooms as your doctor, but uh, notice that you're completely terrified of your unconscious self. And if you can keep that stuff stuffed down, your perception of your life is you're going to be okay, but in order to stay in that relationship, you're going to have to have a low-grade anxiety attack 24-7 to keep that dog from talking to you, because, oh my God, now what? The dog is talking. <laughs> right? <laughs> so I think there's, there's sort of layers of relationship with the unconscious. Maybe that's what I'm trying to speak to, is not only that unconsciousness implies something that might emerge into consciousness, but it also brings up the relationship we have with whether or not it's going to start talking to you or showing you and, things. And would you say on some level, it's like, well, the way I would see it is like unconscious is something that you're not conscious of. So you're not aware of it. So like speaking in the terms of like consciousness and unconsciousness for our human experience, wouldn't that unconscious be like something that you're not aware of? And I guess you were describing it as like not talking kind of like a dog well the other way to look at it would be asleep 
but I, I don't think that the universe is asleep. So I guess I, I naturally attribute consciousness to the universe, even if I can't experience it in my own realm of consciousness, but it's just beyond my consciousness. So it may be unconscious to me, but it exists in the realm of consciousness somehow, somewhere. Or else, why mm. do we have a word for that? What's that? Or else, like, why would we have a word for the unconscious? I don't know, Carl Jung pops in. Well, yeah, yeah, to totally. But I'm just saying, no notice what we're all hinting at here. <laughs> right, the fact that it can become conscious. Yeah. Right. So we have non-consciousness, the, uh, the Jedi, the samurai saying, I cannot be distracted now. I need to empty consciousness. And then we have unconsciousness, which is knocking at the door saying, Hey, uh, you want to maybe nibble on some shrooms so we can have a chat, <laughs> you know, and obviously you don't need, uh, psilocybin to have these interactions. I'm just being playful with the, you know, the boundary and, and, uh, the the relationship because that's that's what I want to bring bring into the conversation is it's the relationship we have to the unknown that we know is there that determines what's going to happen and I think this may be because of the earlier part of the conversation about trust do you trust the unconsciousness to guide you and speak to you or not and how much not I mean how, how I mean I think I'm Thinking of, I mean, I'm being judgmental here, but I'm thinking about all the different religions and uh, especially very modern religions that have said in no uncertain terms that things like meditation are a gateway to the devil. <laughs> I've never heard of that. Uh, yeah, I think that was something the second or third Pope ago had said. Well, I guess he's not wrong technically <laughs> <laughs> perhaps i mean it's not not my ballywick i'm you know big big fan of the human adventure it's just interesting when someone can say the practice of sitting in silence and opening yourself to the unknown is evil or the you know the potential to open up to something evil and that seems to prove this thesis that you have to be in control and there's a lot, a lot of stuff going on here you can't trust and awareness, you got to fill it with my jam or it's the wrong kind of jam, you know? So that, that's, I guess what I'm speaking to is the relationship, the, the spectrum of possible relationships we can have with the fact that unconsciousness seems to be really there and we all know and shh, don't tell anyone, but who knows what the dog might say. <laughs> Yeah, and but who knows what's knocking down there. But if you're afraid to even acknowledge that there's a dog, well, all right then, that's a pretty uptight way to go about existence, you know, not not judging, do what you're going to do. But I suppose, again, the point I'm really trying to bring up is, I, th I think intuitively we all have a sense of what unconsciousness implies, but what it means, not in the... I don't know, Wikipedia definition sense, but what it means viscerally to us as people is, well, what's your relationship to the talking dog of the unknowable that just may or may not be talking to you in your dreams or may or may not have really weird subtext messages when you're really angry or really sad or really high? Hmm. And there, there's an, uh, an aspect of this in, in Taoist practice that I would call, 
And we have to come up with a... There's no word in English for this. Well, maybe there is. Uh, we'd say yuan shen in Chinese, but I think I would maybe describe what innate consciousness might be. Sure. Right? So whatever consciousness is, it's innate to anything that moves, anything that interacts. So trees be included in that? Well, they seem to be reaching for something in two directions at once. Pretty good at it. Been at it a long time. Kind of, kind of thinking they're you know, rocking that out. <laughs> Check. <laughs> go, go, go consciousness for trees. And, um, but there's something innate in that. And that's something that in Taoist practice we aspire to the deconstruction of ego and identity and like that's part of the trauma therapy in qigong is can we deconstruct all of the things that put drawings on the window pane that tell us what everything means before it even comes through the window right so that's our our false shun that's our egoic shun our spirit that's the thing our parents have painted over over top of us in a way and um, then there's something that's actually innate to all of that. And if we can deconstruct and uncomplicate the interference, then we're going to experience innate consciousness, yuan shun. Um, there's actually a practice uh, I could talk about for a minute if you want. Sure, yeah, let's do it. Okay. Uh, so imagine that all human beings, I'll keep it to human beings for now. Imagine all human beings are born with an invisible... Uh, glass or acrylic sphere that we can't see but we know is there and it's about as big as the heart torus you know it's you know six feet in every direction from your heart just as an example and you're born and that sphere we call the e-bubble or e-sphere is uh, pristine just like the window pane and then as soon as you're born your parents decide you know boy girl uh this that you look like your uncle you look like your grandma you look like whatever so they take little cans of spray paint and they start describing you to you with their identity structure of you you're so much like so and so and you're you know you're still a baby just moving your hands and feet around like you know what the hell i got hands and feet and i'm just figuring out that i have a face and and whatever but the first time you get really cold or hungry, you're going to start experimenting with noises and facial expressions to see what gets you fed and what gets you warm. And this is an amazing thing about watching babies from the moment they're born for the first few months is all the characteristics they develop to control their safety and their environment and the behavior of those around them to the degree that they can to get their needs met. So we all learn from a pretty young age. And again, imagine you're living with this, uh, you know, guy in a bubble kind of thing. And you're, you know, three months old. And there you are with spray paint that doesn't know words yet, trying to make the right facial expressions to get the hugs and the breast milk and the blankets you need to stay happy. Right. And then as you get older and you develop language and you get, you know, I want this toy, I don't want that toy then we learn how to like scream and rant and jump up and down to make sense of things. And we start developing our persona in the same way that we would be spray painting the inside of that bubble. So everyone sees the version of us they need to see so that we get what we want. 
And during that whole time, your parents are still spray painting you going, oh, he's or she's so smart or not so smart or really likes this or doesn't like that. And so much like this part of the family that we should be really scared or really happy. And then it's spray paint, spray paint all up until the day you leave your house, <laughs> you know, at 18 or something like that. And even afterwards, probably. And, you know, at the same time, uh, let's say you have a sibling and your sibling might be older, sibling might be younger, and you've been competing with them for a certain amount of attention, but you've been collaborating with them for a certain amount of social safety because at school they help you with certain things. So you're spraying them with your spray paint on the surface of their bubble, and they're seeing you spraying spray paint on the inside of their bubble. And there's sort of two points. One is the more we keep adding to our identity structure, the more we're not experiencing trust, the more we're experiencing control, manipulation, hedging our bets and whatever. And also the more we're trying to manipulate other people by poking them certain ways, spray painting them in certain ways to get them to respond so that they look like, behave like, and uh, I guess act like the version of them we want. So there's really not a lot of trust going on here. There's a lot of manipulation, control, and passive-aggressive shenanigans and a bunch of other things. But more importantly, from a, a meditation point of view, there's four layers of paint between you and any other sentient human being with language. So it's now you're not 18, just escaping all the spray paint as a child. Now you're, say, 32, and you're thinking the person you're with might be someone you really want to stay with and maybe you want to have kids with and you're still seeing them through four layers of paint and this becomes the adult nightmare slash dream of relationships is when does this the paint scraper come out is that why they say love is blind maybe well i, I don't know i think what they mean by love is blind is when you're completely driven by passion and possibility you're you're not going to notice the warning signs <laughs> but i guess what i'm speaking to is recognizing that when we meet people we have to begin removing layers of identity structure to see them as them not them as their ego and in order for us to maybe interact with the world I mean, thinking of the Chinese word qing, or like in a pure way, we need a paint scraper. We need to remove what we're adding to control how people think of us. We, I mean, that's the pain of insecurity is no matter how hard you try to paint your bubble to make insecurities go away, you're, you're banking on the wrong possibility because adding stories and truths and lies and resumes and spray paint to your ego bubble is not going to build security. It's going to build a trust in adding. <laughs> and this is like in the Tao Te Ching, you know, in the first part of our journey as beings, we learn by adding knowledge. And as wisdom becomes to truly do its job, the journey becomes one of subtraction. So that, that, that's a really important thing about, you know, lo looking at consciousness as the window pane or the e-bubble and the paint as the futility of all of our stirring, writhing, 
you know, discomfort as beings, uh, writ large as our identity, as the stories we tell, as the things we believe about ourselves, or, or want to maintain because other people seem to like it. Or, and, and I'm not judging or shaming any one person or paradigm, but I remember my son, 16, 17, and he started to kind of shift his way of dressing um, in a certain direction. And it doesn't matter what the direction is. It's my natural concern as a parent was, uh-oh, what if he starts to identify with how much he's not like the world around him? Because every generation that went through high school always had the group, you know, I think we call, I'm thinking like emos and goths and punks and bikers as you go back through time in, in North America. Everyone as an adolescent could choose the I'm not like you ride. I'm going to tattoo my face and put a bunch of piercings in and, you know, only listen to really specifically pissed off music or whatever. And I'm not judging. I mean, I went through that in the direction I went through. So, you know, we're, we're all <laughs> we're all dancing to the same tune there. But when we start deciding we're not like everyone else, then it really becomes about the paint. And you can really tell how much a person doesn't want to be like everyone else because they go out of their way to look completely not like anybody or everybody else. Right. So then the paint going from our metaphorical paint on the e-sphere kind of turns into real paint as like in our appearance and the way we yeah. look and the way we dress and and we're literally painting our our body essentially. And that's, that's all... been going on as long as humans have had language. I think of the indigenous traditions that I'm connected to and all of the contraries and, and the clowns and, and the, the people who do things uh, different on purpose or backwards on purpose. Yeah, actually, um, I was listening to another podcast, and and that actually came up uh, the Hayoka, like the the sacred cloud. And uh, when I heard it on this podcast, it 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 really resonated with me. It was interesting, just a little side venture. Yeah. So, uh, like I was saying, I mean, we we've been needing to not be normal for a really long time. But only because of the pain we feel at being told we should be normal. Right? And it all comes down to, well, if you're in a society that requires four layers of paint for everyone to agree on how to agree on how to do whatever, then it's going to be about the paint or the not paint or the anti-paint or the what color do you hate the most so I can buy some of that. You know, and, and then it's, this is again, just, you know, the defiance of an ego to not be egoically identified with other egos, you know, and it's, it's all coming from, in a way, the same kind of pain, but it's the, the thing that allows us to remember the window pain is just there to allow light and experience to move in two directions at once. And if we choose to be the window or the sphere and no longer identify with the paint, you know, over maybe years and decades, the sphere will take care of itself. So it seems like we're all kind of playing this game from when we're born to when we have some sort of inquiry or self-discovery or realization that, you know, we've maybe unconsciously been spray painting all of these layers 
and been getting paint from the outside and kind of created this illusory, illusory structure. And I guess this is where something like Qigong and meditation would come in because you were saying that we need somewhat of a paint scraper to, to kind of get through this. So mm -hmm. so how, how would we start something like that? Like what's the, what's the first step? Well, I think you put it that way, you know, what practice are you going to use? You know, and then, and then, then there's, there's ceremony. There's again, the, anti, the, uh, hallucinogenic plant medicines that break through boundaries and show you some really uncomfortable truths and hours and maybe instead of, you know, a year or two of psychotherapy, but we, we have to put our guard down enough. And that's, I think when I was saying trust awareness more than trusting knowledge, because your ego, your identity structure is a knowable thing. Awareness is a field in which information moves through and doesn't necessarily ever have to become knowledge. And that's, a, I think, a quality of the, the benefit of, of a very healthy and consistent and devoted practice is we can be awareness as awareness, be consciousness as consciousness, be in a room, be on a bus, be in a restaurant, and actually just be open and to be the window and to just, you know, luxuriate in, in all of the interesting things, conscious things, unconscious things, comfortable things, uncomfortable things that are moving on and through the world around us and in no way grab onto anything, react to anything, pick anything, and just be awash at the, the beauty and sometimes the terror of what it is to be alive. Right. Uh, as you're talking, I just, I see like a river kind of like just flowing yep. as opposed to pasting. And I guess as you call it adding. Yeah. And that's, I think why we call it a stream of consciousness. Nice. Definitely. So what's the benefit of taking some of these unconscious things that we've done kind of like the paint in the first we'll say 25 years of our life and using a practice to slowly bring that into consciousness and bring that into our awareness. Um, like I can kind of speak to kind of my experience as to what I notice. Um, and uh, first getting started with something like that in my experience was, it was really difficult. Like, I guess I spent a lot of my life being very unconscious. Yeah, well, I think to, to speak to what I imagine is coming up for you is, I think, what's that, what's that funny meme? You know, we have two wolves inside of us. Let's say Yeah, for good wolf, one, bad wolf. Well, I mean, we somehow can turn it into that. But if one of the beings that choose the stream is afraid, then it's going to keep adding paint. And at a certain point of exhaustion and futility and pain, we recognize that that's not helping. The fear is still present, but trying to control it or paint it over or club it on the head with alcohol or whatever we might do um, isn't helping. So then we have to lean into this other stream or this other wolf or dog or <laughs> metaphor, which is maybe a little bit crazy wisdom, a little bit contrary Hayoka, um, 
courage, but crazy wisdom. Cause you can't, courage doesn't always know its own outcome and allowing the unconscious to open itself up to us is, I don't know, putting your hand into a hole, hoping what's in there isn't going to eat your hand. Cause you're, you're kind of reaching into the unconscious saying, okay, I'm staying with the awareness, the spoken truth that, you know, this isn't out to get me. And if I want to embrace the truth, I have to embrace the truth that is also below the known, the knowable, the conscious. So I have to be a bit crazy wisdom, a bit courageous and also embrace the fear to see what comes up. And as we hold space for ourselves and, and allow the past to come up or the unconscious to come up or just the seething anger and rage and shame we feel to come up, we need both dogs. We need the fear to sit and say, I'm standing still and the, the courage and the crazy wisdom dog to say, I'm going to keep sniffing at this, but we're both present to this. And that's maybe why I bring that up because I really don't like that meme because it takes a Native American First Nations teaching, which is part of my background, and turns it into a really weird this or that. You know, I mean, it's the, the, the thing that's often shared is meant for kids. You know, well, it's the one you feed that is the one that's going to grow. I mean, that's true of flowers and all kinds of other things, but... I think in a mature person with that analogy of one dog or the other, one wolf or the other, it's like, I don't think that's a good question. I think it's, uh, how do you name both of these parts of you? And how do you, the three of you, walk into the mystery together and stay open to the truth, right? Trust the awareness, not the knowledge. Trust the question, not the answer. So I guess kind of to bring the window pane, we're kind of being that window pane, but being in, in a state of awareness or I want to use the word witness of these two dogs per se. Yeah. And, uh, and also aware that for the first time we may have washed that window on both sides. And now as we look through it, we're going to see things we've never seen before. And we're going to see things we may have actually consciously have hidden from our memories because we just didn't want to, or we just weren't, you know, grounded enough or really mature enough or ready enough to face it. You know, be with it, to be with both dogs and with the truth that arises between them. Right. So, so is that unconscious aspect um, always related to some sort of fear? Um, I think our response to that in a healthy way, naturally responds to what if something goes wrong? What if I remember something I can't handle? What if I'm really the crazy dog instead of the healthy dog or whatever? Because the mind is always projecting into the future. What if? What are the consequences? And that's what brings fear into being. If you don't think about consequences, there's no fear. That's what actually truly defines a psychopath is they have no way to tangibly understand or relate to the outcome, the consequences, or right or wrong. When I teach martial artists, I try and remind them, you just need to be a little bit psychotic, but not so much that you're going to completely destroy anyone. <laughs> right, it's kind of just turning that switch off. 
Yeah, we're more like a dimmer switch. You're just going to turn it down enough that you can walk into a fist fight and not be worried about how you look on the other side of it. Right. So that's why it's crazy wisdom, you know. I'm not suggesting we want to be psychopaths. I'm just suggesting that the fear comes up the more we recognize the consequences. The what if. What if I'm bad? What if the shame I feel actually determines me as a negated, unvalued, bad, wrong, disgusting, um, inherently tainted person? Because that's what shame wants to tell you. So what if that's true? Oh my God, I can't, you know, I can't live in that world if that's going to be true. So run away, dissociate, drink, turn up the music, bang your head on the wall, do, do whatever you can to not allow that fear, that projected, mostly untrue belief that there's something wrong with you. But if we decide I'm not interested in the consequences, I'm interested in the awareness of truth. I will allow whatever is true to come into the space of truth. And if there's something I need to face that's challenging me and my two dogs, courage and fear, we're going to, we're going to hold space for that. We're going to chew on these things. We're going to clean these windows because something innate in me can never be wrong. Something innate in all of us can never be wrong. And that's the awareness. That's the consciousness. Which I guess would be the gift of life. Well, it's the gift that keeps on giving. We just keep covering it in paint because conditioning works. <laughs> so can we relate um, unconsciousness to the conditioning? Because like we all have, like, at least the way I see it, is like we're kind of programmed. And, we, and I guess you called it an identity structure. And from this conversation so far, it seems that there's no way of really getting around that. No, I think we have to build the ego so that as we, I don't know, I'm going to kind of play with two parallel metaphors, if that's okay. Um, In one way, we're building a castle that has big walls and a moat and on on some level uh, people with weapons that are going to protect us. So that's the identity structure. That's the Western ego. It's, uh, I am this, I am the king, I'm the, you're the queen, you know, or, or whatever. And I'm this big and this dangerous and this powerful and this wealthy and this cool looking and this hip or whatever. <laughs> um, but that's a, a statement of, I, I defy you to change me. Right? And that's, that's where adolescent identity structures have to start. You have to build your castle to be in a world that's primarily focused on comparison and identity and ego. Right? It's just a part of growing up. Mm-hmm. Having said that, though, while we're building a castle, we're also preparing a delicious meal of conscious and unconscious moments and memories and some suffering and some sadness and some silliness and someday we're going to sit down outside of our castle perhaps after escaping it or burning it down or at least knocking enough of it you know around so there's holes in the walls that anyone can come in and you can leave 
and enjoy the meal. Enjoy the feast of the identity you've created. Weep the tears of, of the bad tasting spices that got you through really difficult moments, but savor the fact that that's not really you, that's just the you you needed then. And then it's a feast of celebrating the, I don't know, pardon me for being poetic here, but the vicissitudes of fate. You know, as we call Ming in, in Taoist practice, you know, there's the way life goes and there's parts of it that we're always kind of rolling dice. You know, maybe this will work, maybe that'll work, maybe this is the best way. And, you know, we, we keep finding out as we go. But at some point, we're going to have to look back at the identity structure and be like, man, I am full of some really worked 20 years ago, but sort of hurts now. Uh, parts of my nature, parts of my, well, not your nature, but parts of your identity. And then we have to like chew on them and spit them out and uh, have a ceremonial kind of death, if you will for those parts of us that no longer serve what we, um, what we're becoming by unraveling structure, unraveling identity, unraveling ego. And, but you have to be willing to enjoy the meal. One of my, my favorite, uh, sayings from, a uh, teacher, actually he lives pretty close to where you are. He says, uh, every time I, we ever end up interacting with people and he's talking about stuff, he's always saying, you have to love your ego. You have to love it. If you're believing that there's some part of you that's above it, beyond it, better than it, notice that that's actually just like a doppelganger ego that's using your previous ego as a punching bag to make you stuck in the dance of having a powerful ego. If you can't love it, you can't accept it. You can't you know, snuggle up against it and say, thanks for getting me this far, but we're, we're going to pry that gun out of your cold, dead hand or whatever the metaphor is <laughs> so that you can be free of this fear that you have to be dangerous. Right. And that begins our process of kind of deconstructing that identity structure and maybe, um, putting our focus to something else besides building these walls and, having this nice, solid, rigid thing that we can live inside. Hopefully. I mean, I'm speaking from a, a traditional perspective of mostly indigenous teachings like Taoist, you know, Taoist teachings and, and North American indigenous teachings with, you know, my, my family and my relations and elders and, you know, actually people we both know. And um, that that's... That's where the old school wisdom starts is, okay, have you done enough adding? Cool. Let's start subtracting then, you know, and if you haven't done enough adding, let's add some skillful things that, you know, someday you're going to put down or relax about so that it isn't so clutchy or so defining. And one, one thing a lot of people don't, uh, are not aware of with the whole native name thing is a lot of them are meant to be teasing compliments. And you usually get a new one every time something really powerful happens in your life. So you're never meant to be that one forever. You're the one that people see and recognize and, you know, can joke with and about in a playful way now because of who you are now. And in three years, you might have a different name because now you're, that one is absence and this, this new one is present. You know, and, and that, that's, I think that that's the thing that maybe I would just want to say is that there's a lot of traditional cultures out there that keep your identity structure malleable on purpose. 
And then there's a lot of cultures that your identity, identity structure might define the the amount of shame is, that is heaped onto your family and clan because you do bad things, right? So that there's a lot of ways that identity structures can go and can be used and can be used wisely and can be used like a castle. Well, that was a lot to be conscious of. Uh, let's take a short break here and we'll come back for part two of episode eight, bringing the unconscious into consciousness. In the spirit of patience, let's take a short intermission. When you are ready for part two, tap the link below.